there are overwhelming, turbulent times, but that also means there is major potential to fill the cracks with new ideas and to transform these destructive systems. There are specific root causes for problems and holistic solutions everywhere. There is room for prosperity, there is room for regeneration and a shift in values. Another reality is possible and that's what we're exploring here today. Welcome to Sage Talking. My name is Steven Donziger. I'm an attorney in the United States. I live in New York and I've worked for many years on um, a particular legal case, an environmental justice case on behalf of indigenous peoples in Ecuador, in the Amazon of Ecuador, to hold Chevron accountable for the deliberate dumping of billions of gallons of cancer-causing oil waste into the rainforest. So we have two main focuses today. Number one is the Ecuadorian Amazon, um, how you arrived there, the impressions the country, nature, wildlife, and people had on you, and the devastation that Chevron, or formerly Texaco, has caused there, and also the emotional side of being involved in all of this, how that has shaped your view of corporations, the law, and also the world we live in in general. And also, number two, I want to talk to you about um, the law, especially relating to the United States and as a human rights lawyer, fighting for justice, also in an abused ecosystem like the Amazon Basin with many others against a corporation that knowingly poisoned the life in the area in return for profit. And also you having been personally attacked severely by Chevron, who basically used the law in so many ways that kind of made many people completely write off like the validity and the service that the law is supposed to do us in democracies. So basically also how your relationship to law has changed throughout this all. And I just want to say as a disclaimer to all the listeners, because we're not going to be able to get into the entire history um, today. So for a deeper insight also on Stephen's um, historical corporate prosecution by Chevron, um, because we just won't be able to cover everything. Also visit freedonsinger.com. It's going to be lived down below or just type in Stephen Donziger on YouTube. There's a lot of material and interviews there already so first question i want to know as a young lawyer you traveled to ecuador first in 1993 which was the first um, of about 200 visits and please correct me if i'm wrong uh, with any of these numbers um, what was the case that brought you there and how did you become part um, of this case that kind of changed your life yeah well thank you for having me so um when I was in law school in the Boston area in the United States, uh, many years ago, I met a student from Ecuador um, whose father was a native of Ecuador. And he was the one who made me aware of this awful pollution problem down in the Amazon. And that's how I got involved in the case, by learning about it through a, a law school classmate. Um, and then the, the classmate and I, among others, organized a trip to investigate the pollution problem in Ecuador that we had heard about that had been caused by Texaco, now Chevron. And we went down there in 1993 to look at it with our own eyes, to talk to people impacted by it. And, you know, I personally came away wanting to try to do something about what had, was clearly a horrific problem that had been caused by a greedy 
corporation that was just dumping toxic waste as a way to minimize its costs. So that's how I got involved. It started in law school and then ultimately it brought me down there. And from there I, I started to get heavily involved. Yeah. Um, so basically it was just something you heard about um, and then you decided you wanted to be part of this. It it kind of touched you. Why did that exactly touch you? Did it have to do with the Amazon, which is such an amazing ecosystem, or was it more it just felt like the right thing to do? It was all of that. You know, it was it was really the it just made me so upset, Stella, to see the pollution and to know that it had been caused deliberately by an oil company as a way to save money. I mean, you know, people need to understand that the the environmental catastrophe that you can see in this very large area of Amazon forest, the oil catastrophe, it was done deliberately. It was not an accident. It was part of a production design, an engineering design. So, you know, that it was almost unbelievable for me to see that. Um, and, and know that it was done on purpose as opposed to an accident. I mean, an accident will be bad enough, but this was like, I cannot believe people actually planned this, planned to like dump all of this cancer-causing toxic waste onto indigenous lands. So that, that's really what grabbed me. But of course, in combination with the fact it happened in you know, what had been one of the most important and pristine and delicate and biodiverse ecosystems on the planet made it even worse for me. So I wanted to do something about it. That's how I got involved. Yeah. And I'm sure when you, when you came there first, like, can you maybe tell us a little bit about this? Because I mean, the, the Amazon basin is such an amazing ecosystem, as you said, well, as pristine as an ecosystem can be in this world today, many parts of it still. Um, when you first, what was your first impression of the country, the people, the rainforest, and what did it feel like to step into that place that most of us like have heard so much about or watched documentaries about, but have never visited the parts that were not poisoned? Um, what does it feel like to be in a place like that? What does the air smell like? Like, can you maybe describe what it felt like the first time visiting? Well, thank you for the great question. It felt amazing. Um, I remember vividly the experience and being in canoes and going down river deep into the rainforest, um, the virgin rainforest. And it just was, you know, look, I live in, I live in another kind of jungle. I live in New York City in Manhattan where you hear constant noise and there's like sensory overload and sirens and cars and honking and fire trucks and, you know, people talking and, you know, you're constantly being um, assaulted with, with all these sensations. And then you get into the rainforest and, you know, I think you feel a certain level of peace and, you know, you, you gain a much greater appreciation for the importance of the natural world and the role that we as humans play in it. And I think it's a very humbling experience, you know, because when you grow up in a big city, you're taught to control nature and exploit it. Um, when you're actually in the rainforest with indigenous peoples who, who were hosting me, um, it, you, you, it completely transforms, you know, everything you've been taught about our relationship to the natural world. I mean, you become part of the natural world. You become 
humbled. You become, you understand your role um, is to preserve life on an eco, on all of life's ecosystems as opposed to just using them for your own pleasure or your own commercial benefit. So, you know, I would urge everyone to, if they have the means to try to experience what it's like to be in virgin rainforest with indigenous peoples. It's, it's an extraordinarily transformative experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so I also want to know when you first came there, um, what was the first time you saw the, where you saw the devastation that Chevron had caused in the Amazon what did that look like? What did you feel there? And um, maybe would you share also some of the most profound moments that really shocked you to the core regarding where you saw really the impact um, of uh, just the devastation where you really saw nature or people suffering? Well, I saw a lot of very disturbing scenes, but I remember on my first trip back in 1993, like going over this hill, and it was kind of a nature preserve with not a lot of trees, like a swampy area. And like, as far as I could see, there was just oil. Like the swamp had become a gigantic oil pit. I just couldn't believe it, you know? And even worse, you would see some of the local people um, wading into these oil pits up to their waist or even up to their shoulders um with no protection um on the theory that they were cleaning them with like buckets but i mean it was just futile because we're talking about lakes large lakes of oil in the forest um you can't clean that with buckets so you know these people who were doing this and who i don't know what they were getting paid but it was a very small amount of money um, were obviously desperate and it was a vicious cycle because the people who would wade into these pits on the theory that they were cleaning them, which was a bunch of BS, um, probably had been displaced from their traditional lifestyles by the pollution, you know, forcing them to figure out how to make money to survive. And then they were making money by cleaning up the pollution caused by an industry that had destroyed their traditional lifestyles. You know, the indigenous lifestyle where you're, you, know, you don't have money and you lead a very prosperous life because you're like living off of this bountiful forest. You know, so it was very upsetting to see these, these lakes of oil and to see people who were putting themselves in harm's way, exposing themselves to toxins. Um, without any protection um, to clean them up after their own cultures have been decimated. I mean, it was just very hard to see, but it, it really motivated me. Yeah, I, I also, I, I read something, um, I think a couple of months ago, and I, I want to ask you about this because this was so unbelievable to read that I don't even know, like, I, I just want to ask you because I read that I think the people working uh for chevron or then texaco um that they told locals that they uh, shouldn't be concerned about the oil and, and the pollution because you could drink it bathe in it because it had like vitamins that it was like milk is that true yeah 
It was true. Um, and, and this has been documented by an academic named Judy Kimmerling, who did a lot of research. But, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s, when, you know, Texaco, now Chevron, went into the rainforest to, you know, to go take out oil and drill all these wells, um, they started to dump the, you know, the byproduct, the, the oil waste into rivers and streams. And when they were, conf when the Texaco engineers were confronted by some of the indigenous leaders, like, what are you doing? Why are you, why is this black stuff now in our rivers and streams? They said, oh, it's no problem. It's medicinal. It's like medicine, like vitamins. It's like, you can, you can actually drink it. It's like milk. Yes. They were told that according to these researchers. And I've heard these stories too, directly from the people. That's insane. That is, I cannot even comprehend. That's, yeah, I mean, I could go on about this probably all day, but that's just like even to hear that is is total insanity. Um, so I just want to um, I also want to touch on the law because I think the law is especially right now with climate activists all over the world um, just trying uh, to get politicians to wake up, um, to stand up and say, we want a livable future and um, then them being punished for that um, by the law, by the use of the law. I, I want to touch on that because obviously you've had more experience than most people will ever have with having the law used against you in ways that people could never imagine. So <clears throat> sometimes it seems like a very fluid concept to me it often seems like it's not about justice but more like who has who has more money who has people inside the justice system they can sway i mean in this example chevron poured 70 billion liters of oil and uh, toxic waste into the amazon um which is the home and under the stewardship of indigenous peoples of the amazon um poisoning it killing and lying to people living there um, they lost a lawsuit 10 years ago, were ordered to pay 18 billion, then that was reduced to 9 billion. And in 2022, or now 2023, uh, still not a dime is paid, let alone did they clean up their mess. So could you um, quickly run us through what happened? They lose a lawsuit, and we end up here without any justice served how did chevron or what was the steps how did they manipulate the law and also the people actually who took an oath to oblige to and to protect the rule of law how did chevron and their lawyers exactly manipulate that system and use the law in ways that well it, it shouldn't be used well thank you um let me just say this i i Notice Chevron doing this from the very beginning, and they continue to do it today. They, they don't respect the law. They see the law as a weapon that they can try to turn on those they are who threaten them, as I do, you know, as my clients do. So, you know, Chevron operates in lots of different ways to exercise its enormous power. You know, one is they will go to court if they have to. The other is. They will lobby presidents and attorneys generals and government officials. You know, they will intimidate people. They will take out advertisements, for example, in newspapers attacking people like myself. You know, so Chevron 
plays a power game of which the law is just one component of that type of game. Um, but it's a very powerful component and they manipulate it. And for example, in the case in Ecuador, they did all sorts of things to delay the trial because they knew they were going to lose. For example, one day within one hour, they filed 74 motions on the same topic, um, hoping it would just throw sand into the gears of justice and disrupt the court process and delay a trial that they were losing. Um, they would file motions threatening to charge the judge with crimes um, if he didn't grant their motions. Um, they were doing everything they could to just create chaos. I mean, I'm kind of reminded of what I just saw in the U.S. Congress, um, you know, last week with Kevin McCarthy. I don't know if you've been following it, but, you know, there's a whole group of people now in the U.S. House of Representatives who are ultra conservative reactionaries who are just there to cause chaos. They don't want anything to get done. They don't like government. Um, and Chevron was the same attitude in the legal system in Ecuador. They're like, let's just not do anything. Let's never let let's just try to disrupt the trial, cause chaos as much as we can. What happened was, so that's what they did down there. And then back here in the United States, after we overcame all of that and won the case, they attacked me um, with false evidence and ultimately had me um, criminally prosecuted by a private Chevron lawyer and detained for almost three years, which was a pure retaliation power play move that was blatantly illegal. Um, but a U.S. judge was in on it and they manipulated the law to try to destroy my life, essentially. Um, they have failed because I'm still here. I'm still speaking out and I'm still, for the most part, able to work. But, you know, Chevron has a lot of experience at abusing the law and manipulating the law to serve its interests. And, and most of those types of things that they do really undermine the rule of law, undermine the protections that the law is designed to provide all people, including me. So it's a real problem, and it's something I've been fighting for a number of years. So the case in Ecuador was won. The judgment was admitted by the Ecuadorian and Canadian Supreme Court. Um, how can this happen that nothing happens? Like, who governs who? Because this is something that I think many people uh, can't believe, can't comprehend. Um, is there such a thing as corporate accountability? Well, that's a great question. Let me just answer it by saying that in my experience, um, the judiciary, really judiciaries all over the world, and I've worked in a number of countries, um, are very scared of the fossil fuel industry. And they're very weak compared to the companies that um, are committing these awful human rights abuses. Um, and it's just... I find it hard to get judges as a general matter to conduct themselves in a way that would end up imposing significant liability on these companies. Judges get very nervous. They get threatened. They feel pressure. And it's shocking, actually, the, the degree to which the normal rules of law either are ignored or just thrown out when you know, indigenous peoples or people with not a lot of money um, win a multi-billion dollar judgment. I mean, they, you know, I've seen courts do all sorts of illegal things to prevent the people of Ecuador from collecting on that judgment. 
Now, one fundamental problem is, you know, the judgment is in one country. It's in Ecuador. Um, Chevron took out its assets from Ecuador. Um, so then they moved their assets to other countries, forcing the indigenous peoples of Ecuador who have you know, virtually no money to try to chase them around the world to collect their assets, to force them to comply with the law and pay the judgment. And that's very expensive to do. And then you know, they show up in other countries with new lawyers and they basically have to have a whole other lawsuit, a whole other legal proceeding on top of the one they already fought for many years and had won. Um, and then on top of that, you know, Chevron manipulates the law to attack their lawyers, people like me, and, and get them locked up. Um, you know, one fundamental problem is, is court judgments are happen in, 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 on a national level in a country. These multinational corporations can move their assets around multiple countries. And it gives them a major advantage. Like if you win in one country, they can just say, oh, we don't have anything here. You can't collect and we're going to fight you. And then you got to go to other countries. And, you know, we need some sort of system where there's multinational, multilateral enforcement of national judgments against these polluters and against these human rights abusers and against these wrongdoers. So they cannot, they cannot hide by escaping, you know, to places around the world where they think there's less of a chance they're going to be held accountable. So it's a lot of issues, but the fundamental issue is courts need to do their jobs better and stand up to corporate power. when The corporations like Chevron try to intimidate them. Do you, do you have any specific ideas of how, that could change a bit that you could say, because basically what happened to you, it could happen to anybody and is happening to so many people, basically to anybody fighting for the rights of nature and in the environment, especially because there are often corporations there that are on the other side of that. I mean, it's happening uh, or it happened to Jessica, uh, Jessica Resnicek, to Leonard Peltier, to so many different people all over the world, especially right now with all the uprisings from um, from different environmental organizations, from young activists and so on. I mean, is there any way that you could, a few points that would be really important to restructure that, to to give back more security to people to say, the law really is protecting me and it cannot be just turned against me uh, by any corporation and is totally at their whim? Well, let me say this. Just because, you know, look, we won the case in Ecuador. It's important people remember that. Even though the affected communities have not collected yet on the judgment, they won the case legally. That's an historical fact. It's an important fact. It's inspirational. It's real. It matters on a lot of levels. It also has imposed a significant degree of accountability on Chevron for its human rights atrocities, for its environmental crimes in the Amazon, because there is a court judgment against it. That is embarrassing. It causes reputational harm, and it also creates financial risk, because that judgment can be enforced against their assets, you know, uh, wherever those assets might be. And there's no statute of limitations. There's no time limit on those types of enforcement actions. 
So all of that does produce consternation in the company. It makes them pay a price for their wrongdoing, even if they haven't actually paid the judgment yet. And I do believe the judgment will be paid. So I think it's important for young people out there to know that you can do this work and you can be successful at it. Um, there are different ways you can be successful without ultimately collecting a, a, on a winning case, even if, you know, even if the collection takes time like it has in this case. It doesn't mean in the meantime, you're not creating a lot of good in the world and forcing these, um, you know, these, these polluters to, you know, deal with themselves and to actually spend significant amounts of money dealing with the risk you're creating for them. So all of that helps. It helps the movement. It helps the planet. Um, you know, we can't look at these things in a binary way. There's all sorts of gradations of success that we have to appreciate when you're in this kind of, you know, environmental world and when you engage in these kinds of campaigns and these kinds of struggles, you know, against corporate power, against entrenched interests. So we made a huge amount of progress just because we haven't collected yet. Doesn't mean we haven't made progress. We have. And it doesn't mean we're not going to collect in full at some point, hopefully in the near term. I believe the people of Ecuador will ultimately collect on this judgment. That was so important for me to ask, not just because, um, well, you, you haven't collected yet because Chevron just put so many stones in the way of that, but also because of what they did to you, of how they targeted you and how they're targeting so many people all over the world, even after you you won. You know what I'm saying? That is like the thing that I think for many people is so scary to think of. Well, I think people need to know that power concedes nothing without a demand or a struggle. Like, you know, when you try to work, do work in the environmental world, when you want to try to save the planet, when you want to work to address the issue of climate change, which is an existential threat to life, um, you're going to meet resistance. If you are effective, there will be resistance. Okay, it's inevitable. And when you do this work, you must expect it. And not only expect it, understand what it means. It's a sign of effectiveness when they resist. And the more they resist, the more effective you really are. You know, that's why this extraordinary attack on me only happened, in my view, because we have such a large judgment. We, we've created such risk for them. They're very scared, you know, and it's not like it's a one way street. I mean, you know, we're going after them just like they're going after us. So. Those types of conflicts are a sign that we're making progress. Yeah. Um, you know, companies don't just lay over and write big checks to clean up pollution unless courts force them to. They never do it voluntarily. It's not how they think, not how they function. So people need to understand the dynamics and design strategies to deal with those dynamics and to take advantage of them and not see resistance as a problem, but to see it really as an opportunity for progress, which is how we've always seen it in this case. Yeah. Um, to kind of extend that question a little, um, in your opinion, um, especially in the U.S., do 
governments still control corporations because you know often people they want they just say you know they want governments to take charge to control corporations to kind of put the reins on them um or is it in your opinion right now at the moment especially because corporations do feel so much like they need to protect themselves even more because so many people want change and so many people are rising up um do you think right now that that you can separate corporations and governments can you still see them separate from each other or are they so intertwined right now that corporations have people from their boards or who used to work for them also in governments that they pay people off how much are corporations really influencing governments in the united states where i live it's a, there's a huge amount of corporate control over government i mean i would argue the fundamental problem in the united states right now is that issue um, and it's not just parts of the government it's it's the whole it's all three branches of government it's the courts it's the president um, it's the Congress, um, and you see all of these fundraising secret donations, for example, from the oil industry um, into various, you know, elected officials into a charity for the Supreme Court. Chevron has donated massive sums of money. Um, so, you know, I don't think, I, look, I think the mechanisms and the tools of government to regulate corporations and control them um, have been weakened dramatically over the course of the last 20, 30 years. And, you know, particularly in the United States, but also in other countries. I think the problem is particularly bad here because the corporations have so much money, they've really been able to control the law and allow themselves to donate unlimited amounts of money to politicians and to political campaigns so they can manipulate who gets to make policy. Um, and I don't think you see it to that extent in other countries, you know, like to the extent you do in the United States, because the laws are so pro-corporate um, that they're able to, you know, take all their money and all their power and pay virtually no taxes and, you know, buy off politicians for small amounts of money and, I do think it's a serious problem. It's probably the biggest problem we have in, in at least in the, you know, in the wealthy nations. And it's certainly the biggest challenge we face in the United States, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, to, to close this off, I want to know, um, what did you take away from your time? Um, the, what was it, I think, 45 days when you were, in prison in Danbury, um, I just want to know uh, to anybody who, who doesn't know about that time, definitely read up on the internet about it. Um, how how did you stay strong during that time? Because I think most people, they would say that one of the worst things that could probably happen in their life is to go, uh, to be sent to prison without having done anything wrong i'm just fighting for what is right and then being sent to prison for it how did you stay strong what was your maybe impressions of fellow inmates and also the people employed at danbury can you maybe give us a few sentences about that time thank you well what, what really enabled me to get through more than anything is knowing how, how much support i had on the outside um, including stella from people like you who wrote me letters 
um, which I so appreciate. You know, people are very get very isolated in prison, particularly when they're there a long time. You know, I was only there 45 days and I was the only person in the entire prison out of approximately 900 people who was um, in there for a minor offense. Everyone else was a felony and I was a misdemeanor, which is a, I was in there for the most minor offense level in the entire criminal law of the United States. And like most people, first, I didn't commit a crime. I want to be clear about that, but a court, you know, without a jury, you know, in a, what I would call a rigged trial convicted me of a crime. So I had a conviction, but it was a very minor conviction. And every other time that kind of conviction happened um, to an offender like me, supposed offender, they would not go to jail. They would not go to prison. They would be put on probation or given a very minor type of sentence at home. So the fact they forced me into prison was a reflection of the fact I was Chevron was really controlling us, its, its allies and the judiciary. And they were trying to use me an example to punish me. So, you know, I went in knowing the game they were playing. I was upset by it, but I also knew I had a lot of support on the outside. What I found in prison, by the way, was a lot of humanity. You know, people living in locked facilities for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years and longer. And that's your life. And people don't stop living just because they're in prison. Like they don't go to prison, stop living and wait to get out. You know, they go to prison, they keep living in the confines of the prison to the best of their ability. Um, and I found that people, you know, were incredibly good to each other for the most part. Um, and the staff also understood it as well, the, the prison guards. Um, I never wanted to get too comfortable there. Um, I was not comfortable there. I wanted to get out as soon as I could. Um, and I was fortunate in that I, the staff in the prison, unlike, I will say, the court system here that you know, railroaded me, the staff was very professional. Um, they were mystified as to why I was there. They, they knew something was up and they treated me with uh, decency. Uh, so I appreciate that. And I was fortunate to be able to get out after 45 days, although I never should have been in to begin with. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> do you maybe just want to also quickly share what's the way forward uh, from where you are now? What are you working on um, with the team that's supporting you also on getting your passport back, your law license, um, and still on getting justice for the people and nature um, in the Amazon basin and um, everything that you're continually putting all your heart and energy in, what is that right now? And how can also people um, support you best? That's a longer conversation, but I'm working very hard. Um, I'm documenting the story. I'm doing a lot of writing um, and a lot of human rights work, both with regard to the Ecuador case and other issues, um, you know, in any way I can, including on social media where I have a, a significant following on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I would urge people to, to check out my feeds on Instagram. It's at Steven Donziger and Twitter. It's at S Donziger, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R. Um, we have legal fees constantly. For example, my con so-called conviction, I'm still appealing it. And, you know, lawyers who work 
with me usually either work for free or for low rates, but it's still a lot of money because there's so much complex legal work involved in trying to continue to protect me, including trying to get my passport back, which Chevron has manipulated the system to deprive me of. So, you know, if people want to help, there's really a couple of ways you can help. One is go to the website, freedonziger.com, F-R-E-E-D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R. And if you haven't signed up to our email list, sign up and you'll get regular case updates. And if you can donate to the Legal Defense Fund, um, I don't, just so people understand, like, I don't have a bank account. I'm pretty much off the financial grid because Chevron won't let me keep money. They keep taking it because they got the judge to order me to pay their legal fees, which are millions and millions of dollars. I will never have that much money to pay it. And it's totally unfair, but I only am able to pay my living expenses and my legal fees by raising money now through a defense fund that's kept at a law firm um, that represents me. So you can get all this information on the website, freedonziger.com. And, you know, only because of the generosity of many, many, many people around the world, Stella, have I been able to survive what they've thrown at me. Um, not only survive, but I think become more empowered and stronger. Um, so I, things are still playing out. We need resources um, to deal with everything we have to deal with. So if you can give money, even if it's a dollar, five dollars, one euro, five euros, um, go to freedonziger.com and, and help. Every little bit counts and every little bit is is truly appreciated. So um, by the way, if you can't give, don't worry about it. Sign up anyway and just join our campaign. We need people to sign up and be part of what we do. We often have actions like sign on to a letter to President Biden. We're going to be starting up a campaign for him to pardon me. Um, that is just to end the case with the stroke of a pen. Uh, and a few other things we're going to be announcing soon. So go to freedonziger.com. Thank you so much, Stephen. I'm very honored and so, so happy. It's honestly like a gift to me that you came onto the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and again, telling your story and sharing your experiences. And I also want you to know um, that you have really inspired me so much uh, throughout also the last uh, two years. And um, yeah, thank you for everything you do. Well, thank you, Stella. And I just want to say back at you, you um, are someone I greatly admire. Uh, your questions were so thoughtful. Um, and I love what you do, your focus on climate justice. Um, and it's an honor to be able to share my story with you and your listeners. So thank, thanks so much to you. I appreciate it. Also, I want to acknowledge and honor Indigenous and First Nations peoples as custodians of most of planet Earth's biodiversity and bearers of ancient knowledge. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging and recognize all Indigenous and First Nations peoples' strength, resilience, and deep connection to nature. Thank you.